speaking in the summer evening services on some aspects of the Old Testament law of God, the, the challenge of the law. And this evening, I'm going to read from a few verses from Exodus chapter 22. And I do not plan to exegete these verses except to use them as illustrations for a beginning discussion on something that is, even for modern Christians, not a very pleasant topic or a topic that in some churches is, is uh, removed from their theology, and that is penalties and punishments. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would help us, that you would teach us the ways, your ways behind these laws. Help us to remember that these are not Israel's response to God, but God's word to the people of Israel, to his people, the people that you chose for yourself. That these are words that you spoke. These reflect your character, your glory, your order. And we ask that we would be attentive to them as well. And we ask again that you would use these to build up your church. For Christ's sake, amen. In the traditional Reformed view, the uses of the law are usually stated in, in this order. First, a the use of the law is a restraint to sin, to restrain evil and wicked behavior. Secondly, the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ by condemning us in our sin. And thirdly, the use of the law is a standard of Christian obedience and living. Now, there are those who would argue that, that the uses of the law may be those three, but the order is perhaps not the best order. And I believe, along with some of those individuals, that the overall unifying purpose of the law and of the tabernacle and of the promised land, those three foundational 
things that God used to proclaim himself and his character, the overall unifying purpose of those is to look forward to Christ, to point us to Christ. And then it becomes to us clear that in seeing the glory of Christ, we would desire to follow Christ in obedience in our living. And that that living shows us that we, in our own power, cannot live truly obediently and would then be used as restraint to our sin, to drive us again back to Christ. But as I say, I believe the purpose is to look forward to Christ, to point us to Christ, to show us the aspects of Christ, or in Porthra's title of his book, The Shadow of Christ in the Giving of the Law. And to see him is the purpose. And there are truths embedded in that or embodied in that one purpose. That God is the originator, God is the creator, God is the sustainer of the universe. And God in that universe expresses himself in the order and the beauty and the life of his creation. But another truth, and this leads us to, I believe, to understand the idea behind the penalties and punishments in the law is that God is the, also the redeemer and restorer of the order and the life that he designed that was disrupted by sin and the fall of man. And it is that which is our challenge, I think, is to see how those three things, that God is the originator of order, that he expresses himself in the order as we look at creation, as we look at how he designed for people and his creation to live and exist, that he is also the redeemer and restorer of that order. That in that, there is the principle of following God in his order, but also in his restoration of that order. Some label it the principle of replication and imitation. That even as the temple was a replica of that great place that we will see at the end of days, a, a replica of what God was like and the order and the furnishings pointing to Christ, there is also an imitation of him in restoring the order between us as human beings, between us and the creation that we have destroyed or that we have disrupted, I guess is a better word, by sin. The foundation for that replication and imitation, of course, is what we read a few weeks ago from Leviticus 2. God's command, be ye holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the standard. This is the original holiness that God would bring us back to. And so we give honor to God 
as an act of our thanksgiving, but also in our imitating his zeal for his own name. We honor God, and the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments show us that, the honoring of God and having that same zealous attitude for the glory of his name. But there's also the caring for the world, caring for other human beings in the other commandments of the Ten Commandments. Also an act of our thanksgiving, but also an imitation of his original care for that order and that beauty and the way that he designed it. Because when God's holiness and standards are violated, there is to be not only a renewal of honoring God, but also a restoration of his creation of his order. We owe the honor that was due originally, but there is also the debt to be paid of the sin itself. In the various offerings that we see in the Old Testament, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the burnt offerings, all of those things have those two sides. Doing what we ought to have done, honoring God with them, but also a restoration of that relationship and that order that God designed. And so there is necessarily those two things. The, the, rest, the various offerings for sin and guilt do two things. There is a punishment and destruction of the sin, but there is also a restoration of the order that was disrupted by the sin in the situation. And that's why I think it's foundational that we see that when we read these things. They can be very confusing. And, and even reading the order. You know, I would start with the simple. Uh, when we read Exodus 22, immediately we, we see that for an ox you've got to pay five times and a sheep only four. And I agree with some of those writers. I have no idea why. I want to start with the single substitution, the restitution, and, and we'll look at that today. But, but again, there has to, I think, has to be in our mind that God's righteousness requires punishment for sin. And if we were to understand God, I think it necessarily involves understanding the seriousness of sin. And if we could understand the seriousness of sin, then we, I think we could understand the need for punishment. And again, as I say, our society does not like that word. There are those who will not punish their children. And, and even, you know, there is a confusion, I think, even when in my early days of being a dad between punishment and discipline, and yet there, there is something connected with both. But there are many today that say we can't punish at all. We, we, we let things ride. We live and let live. But that is not God's righteousness. And it's not what we are to imitate. What is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. It's a violation of his majesty, of his goodness. And, and in fact, it despises who God is. Because... It's an attempt to play him, to play God and usurp his authority by determining for ourselves what is right and wrong. 
Understanding God also involves understanding that his righteousness requires punishment for sin. The righteous punishment for sin, of course, is death. The soul that sins, the scripture says, it shall die. But punishment is never arbitrary. And I think that's perhaps the, the rub with many, even with Christians, is some punishment by humans seems arbitrary. But punishment by God is never arbitrary. It fits his holy character. Punishment is actually, as one author said, built in to the order of the universe. Because sin, in a sense, destroys God's character, at least that's its attempt, to destroy who he is, then God destroys man by subjecting him to eternal punishment. It is what is just from a just God. Or, if that destruction of man is not, then what else? And God has supplied the what else. There must be another. There must be the substitute. There must be a representative who bears the destruction, and Christ is that substitute. When he was made sin for us on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Either one or the other. But God's righteousness requires punishment for sin. And it's logical. There, there is a logic to the idea of just recompense. Some people call it the, the principle of similar measure. In Obadiah verse 15, we read these words. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. As you have done, it will be returned to you. That's the similar me measure. We read other passages. Exodus 21 is one you're very familiar with. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Or going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, my man shall his blood be shed. There is a justice, and there is that idea of the similar measure. But then again, we see that many of these things in the law, in the scriptures that we have, for the Israelites, they were to govern themselves. They were to be the penal authority in, in, in human hands. They were to have that authority. But again, we must remember that man's authority in the affairs of other men is never absolute. It is derivative and it is limited. And I think that's where state governments, federal governments, get it wrong. And, and we, as individuals, we get it wrong. We, we take an authority to a level or a, a place that was never intended by God. Human government is a blessing. I believe that it is. But it also must be a reflection of divine authority. Because that's what it has to be based on. 
then if it is not, it becomes arbitrary. It becomes something that is a weapon or something evil in the hands of man. And then we know this. We have a phrase that the punishment must fit the crime. Punishment and penalties must correspond to the nature of the crime. And in Scripture, we see that they do. If we could remember some of these principles, the, the principle of similar measure, we, we see how important it is to God as he says these things to us. But again, remember that it's not just the principle of meeting out punishment but it's coupled with the principle of restoration. And we see that as examples in this passage. We see one kind of buried down, I guess it's in verse 7 of Exodus 22. The, the principle of single-fold restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, uh, sorry, um, that's the thief, um, uh, we have to go down to verse 14, excuse me. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. That is single restitution. It's, he borrowed the ox to help him with his farming. And while the ox was, was in his uh, field, it was injured or it died, but the owner was not there. God says he must make full restitution. What does that mean? It's simply that he's restoring the balance. He's restoring the normalcy to the situation. He's restoring to the man who lent his ox, or whatever his property may have been, back to him that which he started with. And it had nothing to do with the man who was had the ox in his possession at the time or use at the time. It had nothing to do with the owner. It died and or it was injured from some accident. And we see here that principle that it, it is restored. It, it's restoring that which was in the beginning. And there is no penalty except for the man to make that restitution. But what about if a man steals, in verse 7, if a man steals, or if a man gives his neighbor money or good to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. Why double? If the thief is caught and he has the stolen goods in his possession, Again, there's two principal things that are at work here. Repayment of that which is, has been stolen. It is a simple restoration. Taking the situation back to where it was. Restoring to the owner his rightful possession. But because there was evil intent because there was a desire to either damage or never repay that which he stole, then there must be a restitution, a payment really, 
and repayment for the evil, for the sin, for the evil intent of damaging another's property. Payment for sin includes those two things, the payment and the restoration. The penalty for the sin, but also restoring the order that God originally intended. And we see that expanded out in the work and the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Because we see those two sides of punishment fulfilled in Christ. Christ's suffering and death were because of the penalty that was required for man's sin. But Christ's righteousness in living the life that he did and going to the cross for our sake and being crucified, dead, buried, and yet rising again, his life is a restoration of the order that God intended for man. There's penalty and restoration in the glory of Christ. To be sure, the penalties and punishments that we see in the scriptures, and we know that we experience from time to time in our lives, involve pain and frustration for, for man, for men. It's meant to wake us up to our sin. It's meant to restrain us from doing it again. It's helping us to see our need for a remedy. And it is meant to cause us to flee to Christ. So there is pain and there is frustration. There is, in a sense, uh, not a destruction of the man to annihilation, but a destruction of his normal, what he has moved into in his sin as a normal life to get him to see that that is not the normal life. Sin and crime in particular is a failure. It's a failure supremely to love God above all others, but also a failure on our part to love our neighbors. Punishment is a practical structure for both repayment and restoration. But it also reminds us that human beings are created in the image of God and human relations in all of their facets must replicate. Again, the principle of replication. They must replicate the justice of God in our relation with others. See, we focus so much on the punishment and the penalty and People see God as harsh, but he is just, but he is also good because he's just in his punishment, but he is gracious in his restoration and his way of restoration that he opened up in Christ. In God's desire to destroy sin and guilt, he does warn us of the long-term consequences of evil behavior. The fifth penalty for sin is destruction of the sinner in hell. But he gave us that substitute and the destruction of the substitute, the death of Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners. It shows us, foreshadows for us, that 
final judgment of God. Because at the final judgment, there will be the penalty for those who are no, not in Christ. But there will be that final restoration of relationship with Almighty God for those who are in Christ. And so that ought to be a warning to those who are not in Christ, who do not know him. There will be a final day. Will it be the final destruction, the final agony forever, or will it be the final restoration of relation with God? The substitutionary sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, the animals that were taken for sacrifice, give us a temporal picture of that eternal punishment. But for those in Christ, we see the foreshadowing of that full and complete restoration and consecration before God. God's destruction of sin and guilt by penalties and punishments reflects his love for his only begotten son. God will not tolerate dishonor of Christ. He will not tolerate the usurping of the authority and the glory and the honor of his son. But God destroys wickedness while rescuing the wicked sinner. Vern Porthris calls it the infinity of punishment and goodness and justice. Because God's punishment, God's goodness, God's justice is united together in the crucifixion and the resurrection of God's only Son. And that is our only hope, but yet that is also our glory. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask again that you would help us to understand these things, to meditate upon them, to look deeply into these things that we might understand, your character, your order, your beauty, but also your justice, also your righteousness. And so we ask that we would learn of you, that you would teach us, that you would grow us in these things. And Father, that you would cause us to follow these principles, to imitate you in your relationships, in your righteousness, that we would replicate your character as we live, as we rub shoulders, as we do our work, as we go about our business. Father, that we would do these things for your glory, for your honor, and for the building up of your church, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.